Well, for the four, fa- past four weeks, we've been spending each Sunday morning in Isaiah, and we've titled the series Christmas in Isaiah, and I hope you have enjoyed this book of the Bible, Isaiah. And first, we saw the hope of a Christmas tree. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, which says that, that, that in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And so Isaiah 4, 2 and Isaiah 11, 1, we saw how there was this hope of a branch, which was a title of the future royal Messiah who was promised to be born. And this text holds the promise that, that the royal family tree of David would be cut down, but a new sapling, a new king would grow up from the dead stump, and that was Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so we saw the hope in a Christmas tree. Of course, it wasn't a typical Christmas tree. It was a family tree. Then we saw the hope in Isaiah chapter 6 for Christmas coal. And we saw that Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw into the throne room of heaven, to the temple of heaven, the heavenly temple, and saw Jesus Christ himself pre-incarnate on that throne, ruling in that heavenly temple. And then Isaiah, remember, he cried out because he was cursed. Woe is me, because he saw the holiness of the king. So the seraphim sent, or the, the Lord sent a seraphim to put a holy coal upon his mouth, which represented that that God, the, the, that the king was applying the work of the altar to the sinful soul of, of Isaiah. And the hope for Christmas coal here was the hope that this same holy king will come into this world and he will offer us that same cleansing and forgiveness. And we said at the very end of that chapter, we saw the holy seed is its stump. And so this promise that one would come, one would come to cleanse us from our sins. And then last week we saw the hope of a Christmas name. And that was found in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this was a prophecy to the royal house of David that a baby from the royal line of David would be born to them and it, the sign this child was here would be that it was born of a virgin. And so All of this leads us up now to Isaiah chapter 9. And and you see this progression. You see this kind of, this building. You see this kind of climax here. And you see that here happening in Isaiah 9, where you look down in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 6. Here you see this prophecy of a child to be born. And Isaiah 9, 6, 6 says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You can almost hear the tune in your head, can't you? That great, great verse. And all of these texts, and even more as you read through the book of Isaiah here, look 700 years into the future at the birth of this King, Jesus Christ. 
And throughout those 700 years, really from this time to the time of King Ahaz to the time of King Herod and, and Caesar Augustus, during those years, there were true believers who looked for and longed for that Messiah. In fact, that's the interesting thing as you look in the Gospels and you see these first century believers like Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Simeon and Anna and the shepherds and the wise men. You see these people who, who would have known and read this book, this 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 book of Isaiah, and they would have trusted God's word that there was this king that was going to come. And so they longed for this hope of Israel, for this one who would be born and would be the triumphant king. And so they had this hope. And this was a hope that was not just a, not a, a, a hope so hope, like I, I hope this happens. This is more like a hope sure hope. It was like, we know this is going to happen. It was just a matter of, of timing. You know, when you have a birthday, usually families in America get a cake, and you have candles on it, everyone gathers around, and there's some snotty kid, where it's, that's his birthday, and he blows on those candles. Why do we do that? I don't know. Someone should probably look that up. But he makes a wish, right? And he hopes for, you know, maybe, maybe he'll get a pony for Christmas or something like that. And that, that kind of hope is maybe like a, it's a hope so. I, I hope so, which in our family that will never happen right? But it's a wish. But that's not what you find here. Here, it's more like the, the boy on Christmas Eve that goes under the Christmas tree, and he looks at the presents, picks them up, and he, you know, carefully unwraps them, looks at all the gifts, puts them back under there. Has anyone ever done that in here? Okay, confession time. And I've never done that. <clears throat> I just listened to the door to hear what my parents gave us. But anyways, and he puts it back under there, and he gets up in the morning, and he hopes to get those gifts but it's a hope certain, right? A hope sure. Like he knows for certain, he's for certain he's getting those because he peeked at it. And we have this hope. We have that kind of hope, the hope that we know for certain that, or I should say those believers had the hope that they knew for certain this Messiah, this King would come to save his people, to restore the harmony of the Lord, to rule in righteousness. And so when he came, they responded with great joy. So if you look in chapter nine, what we're going to see is we're going to see these prophecies of this royal baby who was to be born as the divine king. Verses 1 through 5, we'll see what this promised king will do. That is that he'll bring the light of the word and he will um, conquer darkness and sin and overcome that darkness. And then verses 6 and 7, we'll learn how the promised king will, will rule and he'll rule in wisdom might, compassion, and peace. So I basically have two questions I'm going to ask, and this is going to be our outline this morning. First, we're going to ask why. Why do we need a Christmas baby? Why do we need this coming one? And then next question is how. How will this Christmas baby, how will this one rule when he reigns as king? So let's do this first, though. Let's look at the word of God this morning and read that together. Isaiah chapter number 8. We're actually going to start in chapter 8. We're going to start in verse... I lost my place here. Let me find it. Uh, verse 20. We're going to start in verse 20. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. We're going to read through chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for who for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of his peace, there will be no end. In the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we believe that your word, the scripture, is breathed out by you. Every word that was written by Isaiah, these prophets, these apostles, in this holy book is directly from you. And we believe it's profitable to teach us what is right, to show us what is wrong, to show us how to correct that wrong, and then how to keep walking in righteousness so that we can be the complete people of God that you want us to be. So I pray this morning, speak to us through the word of God. Holy Spirit, get a hold of our hearts and may we submit to our King, the King of Kings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So why? Why do we need a Christmas baby? Well, let me start off by talking about a couple weeks ago, we had the, the power go out in our house, and I'm sure many of you had that same thing happen. A lot of children thought that was a lot of fun. Our kids thought that was fun. You know, no school, games. It was a lot of, a lot of entertainment going around. But when the night came, it was dark. And probably, I would say, for us that are in a warmer climate, probably the worst part of having no power is the darkness. The darkness can bring danger. If you're outside and it's dark, you don't know who's around the corner. Also, it can be difficult to walk through the house to find things and to get things done. And hopefully, 
if you are one of those people that find yourself without power, you go to bed early. <laughs> and that's a blessing for us parents and a curse for the kids. So there you go. In the Bible, though, darkness is used as a metaphor for our sinful hearts. And that's what we see here at the conclusion of Isaiah chapter 8. So the first question really I want to ask is why do we need this hope of a Christmas baby, of, of one to come? And the answer really is because we are in spiritual darkness. We are in spiritual darkness. Remember, we ended chapter 8 looking at um, Isaiah, looking to the word of God in the light of the word. King Ahaz was the king and he was a wicked, wicked king of Judah. His heart was filled with darkness. He was really given over to his own desires. He, he trusted his own wisdom to get out of the problem that he had, and that was uh, two armies coming after him, Syria and Israel. If you remember what he did, he decided to give away the gold of Jerusalem, really the gold of the temple, to try to bribe this king not to, to come and get him and, and to try to uh, get him on his side. And so King Ahaz gave away the gold of the temple to this king, the king of Assyria. And it's kind of like, like when you go to the beach, you know, and you give a chip to one of the seagulls. You ever done that before? Or your kids ever done that? You have a bag of chips, and the seagull, a seagull comes and lands right there, and you take out a, a chip, and you throw it down there. And what happens when that happens? All the seagulls come, don't they? In other words, like they don't just want one chip. They want more than that. And that's kind of what happened with the king of Assyria. You know, he's like, he gave him some stuff. And the king of Assyria said, well, uh, there's more where that came from. And King Ahaz and the people of Judah, they trusted their own wisdom. They relied on their own strength. They followed their own sinful hearts. And so what we see is the, the, the city of Jerusalem, the land of Judea, the hearts of the people were spiritually dark. And so where does Isaiah go? Look at Isaiah 8.20. Isaiah says, listen, I have, I have the light. I have what I'm going to go to. And what is that? He says in Isaiah 8.20, to the teaching, to the testimony, to God's word, to that which will give me spiritual light. But the people rejected God's word. Look at verse 20. He says, if they will not speak according to this word, the word of God, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light in them. So here are people who are in spiritual darkness. And why is that? They've rejected the word of the Lord. Verse 21 says, describes this darkness. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and, when, and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. So here is the judgment of God upon Judah for the darkness of their hearts. You know, what's interesting is what you see here in Isaiah chapter 9. Also, we saw this, you remember, in, in Isaiah chapter 6. And that is that God gave these people over to their own sinful desires. In other words, why did the darkness come upon these people? It's because they rejected the word of the Lord. They rejected God. And God in judgment said, fine, then you can be left on your own in your sin, which actually is judgment. You ever seen a parent, or maybe you were this parent, where you had a kid that was on the ground and maybe they're like a two or three-year-old and they're throwing a tantrum and they're kind of out of control and that parent walks away from them. I would not recommend doing that, by the way, as parents. But you ever seen that, something like that happen? That, that kid's like going crazy and bonkers. And the parent goes, well, I'm just going to basically leave you to yourself. You know, ball it out, cry it out, throw it out, and then come back. Again, I don't recommend that. But what you see is kind of that right here where the Lord says, you know what? 
You're going to live in your sin. You're going to choose darkness. Then I'm going to leave you to yourself. That's the judgment of God upon them. And sure enough, for 700 years, Judah was in this spiritual darkness. And that's why you see these, these magi, these wise men from the east, they come to Jerusalem and they say, hey, where's, where's the king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they go to the scriptures and they're like, oh, it's in, it's in Bethlehem. But how many of those religious leaders followed to find that, that baby that was born as a king? Or when Jesus announced that he was the king, that he was the Messiah, how many bowed to him? How many, how many instead ignored him and then therefore condemned him as a fraud? And why did they do that? Why did the religious leaders in Jerusalem in that first century, why did the, the religious people who had God's word, why were they in darkness? It's because they rejected the word of God. And, and the judgment of God upon them was to leave them to their own spiritual blindness, to their own sin. They, they really, in the end of this day, what it really was, they wanted to rule their lives as their own king. They didn't want Christ. They didn't want God. They didn't want anyone else to rule them. They really wanted to be their own gods. They want to be their own king. And really, this darkness is what we find in the heart of each one of us here on this earth. Each person has the same kind of darkness in their heart, the same darkness that fills our heart because of our sin. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, 17, that those of this world, those who are alive in this world, they, they walk in the futility and the foolishness, really, of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of their heart. They have become callous. They have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And isn't that a description of our world? But friends... A life without God, that's a description of that life as well and that heart. And this verse basically, these verses basically teach us that left to ourselves, we are foolish, spiritually weak, alienated from God, and we're in spiritual, spiritual turmoil. So darkness here represents those who reject God and those who are left to their own sin, to their own self. And why is a person like this? What does our verse say here in Ephesians 4? Why is a person like this? It's because they have a hard heart. Because they reject God. Darkness is brought upon your heart because of your own rejection of the Lord. It's kind of like I, when I go into my kid's bedroom, sometimes they're reading at night. They'll be reading in there. And so, you know, outside it's, it's night and maybe they started when it was light. And they're in there reading a book. And I come in and I'm like, hey, it's, it's dark in here. You guys need to turn the lights on. You can't read in the dark. Your kids or grandkids ever done that before? And you're like, it's going to hurt your eyes. I don't know if it's actually true or not, but we tell our kids that, right? It's going to hurt your eyes if you read like that. And so I come over and I go, come on, you guys need some light. And boom, flip the light on. And they're going, ah, oh, my eyes, my eyes, my eyes, you know? And then what happens is over time, you, you don't recognize it's getting darker and darker and darker. And it just doesn't, it seems normal. You kind of get used to it. Until when? Until you see the light. And I think that's actually what happens many times to us is that we, we find ourselves constantly saying no to God in this and rejecting the word of God in our life. And, and it's not something that comes all at once. It's just a gradual thing over and over. We reject the Lord. And this darkness fills our heart. I wonder how many people listening to me right now, how many believers in here have over the past number of days or maybe weeks or months that you have 
resist the Lord in some area of your life and the light of Christ has dimmed in your heart to the place where it's like you don't even realize it anymore. At one time, you had a passion for the word of God. You loved the Lord, but you started saying yes to maybe a particular sin or maybe just saying no to the Lord's leading in your life and no to the, the fellowship of the Lord to the word of God. And your heart became darker and darker where now you're just used to it. What once bothered you doesn't bother you anymore. What, which once was a problem for you, which made you feel really bad, maybe doesn't make you feel as bad anymore. Which shows that you have allowed the darkness of sin to rule your heart. I was speaking to someone the other day, and because of everything that's going on, they, had, they were required to stay home. So they had to miss church for um, a little bit, and which is under, completely understandable, and I um, support that. But this person was saying, they said, you know, I, after not being here, I, I, felt, I felt like I was getting used to it. Like it was actually normal. Like it was okay to, to actually not come be with people. Like I actually didn't need to go to church anymore. I actually didn't need to hear the word of the Lord anymore. I didn't need God's people. And they said it actually scared them. It scared them because they re- realized they started to get into a routine where it was like, I don't really need this. And, and, and they recognized that that was a dangerous position to be in. It's very dangerous to be in that position. I think that we can have this happen, whether it be coming to church, whether it be reading our Bible. I think sometimes people can have this in regard to some really, really, um, really dominating sins in their life. Maybe uh, there's a woman who's at work and maybe she just starts flirting once or twice with that man. Or a guy who gives the excuse that I'm just going to look one more time and never do that again. Or a child who sneaks behind his parents' back and says, they don't need to know about this. And, and at first you might feel bad and you take that step and you think that's probably not the best thing, but you probably shouldn't do it. And then what you find yourself is down a road that you never thought you would go down and your heart is dark. And when you find yourself in that situation, what do you need? You need the light of the word of God. And so chapter 9 really is a glorious chapter of hope for those who are spiritually dark. The light will come to rescue. So look at verse 1. Here's the hope. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, so this is a future time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. I want you to notice something. He is speaking here of a later time. So he's speaking of the future. This is a prophecy. But if you notice in these verses, the next few verses, he speaks now in the the past tense. The prophet wrote in what people call the, the prophetic perfect. That means that he wrote in the past tense, about future events. And you might say, why would somebody do that? Why would a prophet do that? Why would he write in the past tense about future events? Well, he wrote in this way to highlight the certainty of these future events. I mean, he wrote like it's already happened. So when we read through this and you're like, this sounds like it's in the past tense. It's, it's like he's saying, it's like it's already happened. In the mind of God, it's already happened. 
So he's saying this is the certainty that this is going to take place. So look at verse 2. Here's the certainty of this prophecy. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The picture of the prophet, the, the picture the prophet paints here in verses one and two is the land of Israel and Judah in deep spiritual darkness. And then someone shows up in really the darkest place in Israel to shine. Look at verse two. He says, the great light, the great light of God. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Well, what is this light that is shining? Well, we saw in chapter 8, and we don't have time to go through it, but it's the word of God. It's the word of God. So this is a prophecy. We're going to see this in just a moment. It's a prophecy that of Jesus, who is the word, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So Jesus is God. He is the word. And he is the light, John 1, 9, the, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So Jesus is the word, he's the light. And this light meant, this light meant that those, this, this, I'm sorry, this light went to the most spiritually dark place in Israel. Now where's the most spiritually dark place in Israel? Well, look in verse 1. It says there. Verse 1 says, it's in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, where is that at? Well, these, these are the two northern tribes in the land west of the Jordan around the Sea of Galilee there. Later, Naphtali became known as Upper Galilee and Zebulun as Lower Galilee. So these are two areas of, of Israel and they were the first two really to fall at the hands of the Assyrians. Remember the Assyrian army was sent by God, by his sovereign hand, to come into judgment against Israel. And this, this was the first place to fall to the Assyrians. So this is the first place to be hit in judgment from God. And then after the Assyrian invasion, many Jews were deported from this land around the Sea of Galilee. They were deported from this land, and they were sent back to Assyria. And then Gentiles came into this area. So it was called Galilee of the Nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a very Gentile area. So it was a very spiritually dark area. And in verse 1, Isaiah tells us the location, really, of the darkest spiritually darkest place in Israel, which was this place, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now you listen to that and you might say, Pastor Ben, why do I even care about any of that? How does that give me any hope? I'm glad you asked. Would you go to Luke chapter four? Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter four. Where did Jesus live for most of his life? He lived in Nazareth, right? He was born in Bethlehem. And then his, uh, Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt. And then when it's safe, they came back and they lived in Nazareth. So Jesus grew up in the city of Nazareth, which is lower Galilee, the land of Zebulun. So Jesus grew up in this land of Zebulun, lower Galilee. So look in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. The Bible says, And he, that's Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, that's the book we're reading and studying in, was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he turns in a scroll to what we know now as Isaiah 61, and he read that text in front of them. And you can see that the beginning of that text in Luke 4:18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So this is a, a text that prophesied of the future Messiah, the future king that would come, the Holy Spirit would anoint him. And then I'm not going to read that whole text, but look at Luke 4:21. And he began to say to them, "Today this scripture, Isaiah 61, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he was saying, I am the Old Testament Messiah that, that Isaiah spoke about. However, how do the people around him respond? How do the, the people of Nazareth respond to the word of the Lord here? Where they rejected his teaching, they rejected his claim, and in fact, they tried to kill him. So what happened here in Matthew chapter 4? Here Jesus is in the synagogue and he shines the light of the word into the hearts of people. And what do they do? They reject him. So here are people who have, who have this darkness in their hearts and they reject the word of the Lord. And then go over to Matthew chapter 4. So from Luke 4, go over to Matthew chapter 4. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth, the land of Zebulun. Then he moved as an adult to Capernaum, which is the land of Naphtali. Look at Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. The Bible says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that's Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then what he does is he, Isaiah here quotes from the text of Isaiah 9 where we were just at. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now why did Matthew quote this text right here, Isaiah, from, uh, sorry, why did he quote Isaiah chapter 9, our text? Well, first of all, I think he did it to prove that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the Messiah. So he did it to prove that Jesus is Messiah. But secondly, he sets up what Jesus is about to do, which is what? Look down in verse 17. The Bible says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent. In other words, your sinners turn from your sin for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, turn from your sin to who? The king. Here's the king. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. And repent of your sin. Turn from your darkness and turn to the king. Turn to me. So go back to Isaiah chapter 9. We could go through text after text studying how Jesus is, is shown to be the light. How he's the word I mean, consider how many times Jesus said, um, for instance, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Think about even at his birth, there was a light that announced that he was coming. What was that light? 
It was a star. Now, how many of you this, this week saw that, that star that people call the Christmas star? Okay, it wasn't a star at all, was it? It was actually two planets, but some people called it that. We were out caroling someone, and they, were, they went around and showed us, hey, look at this. And so we saw the two planets, what is it, Saturn and Jupiter, is that right? Come together in this light, and you know, 800 years ago this showed up, and some people called it a Christmas star. But I got news for you, it was no Christmas star. It was beautiful, it was amazing, but when I got in my car, I didn't know how to get out of that neighborhood, and I couldn't follow that star out of that neighborhood. <laughs> and that's, that thing didn't move, Right? But the Christmas star, the star that announced Christ's birth, it actually, it moved, didn't it? So I don't, I don't think that those two planets like came and rested over the place where, where Christ was. In fact, Matthew 2, 9 says, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. That didn't probably happen with those two planets. I don't think so. This is a supernatural light that was uh, supernaturally shown to declare that Jesus was born. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, with great joy. And what, what's so special about this description of Jesus Christ being light? What's so special about light? Well, light reveals darkness. Darkness really hides reality. If we were to turn all the lights out in here off, the, the darkness would hide what was really in the room, right? And light reveals what's in the room. The other night, I was walking back to my house, and I saw in the front of our house some, some bushes. I saw something move in the bushes. So I had in my hand a big flashlight. This is saying a 1,600 lumens, which I think is pretty bright, okay? And so I, it's like a spotlight. You know, you can put it back there. And so, you know, so what was it? Like, it could be a raccoon. We've seen those around the property. We actually saw some coyotes one time run across the front of our house there. So it could be like a rabid dog. You know, what do you think? It, or it could be a, a person just deciding they're going to sleep under our bushes, okay? So, well, actually, I took my flashlight out, and I shined it on there, and guess what it was? It's a little rabbit, so it was harmless. But I did have a lot of those things going through my head, like, what do you think that is right there? And light reveals what is real, it reveals what is true, and it reveals the problem. And so when we have the light of God's word shine upon our hearts, what does it reveal? It reveals that we are broken people. We're lost. We're, we're in darkness, we are foolish and spiritually weak. We're alienated from God. We're in spiritual turmoil. And do you, do you feel that darkness sometimes in your heart? When you turn to your own self, when you indulge in your sin, when you decide to, to live a life out of the presence of God, do you feel that darkness? I mean, any reasonable person can look in our world today and we can see that we live in a spiritually dark, broken world, right? The, our government, not just our government, but governments, plural, are corrupt. Marriages are in shambles. Relationships are a mess. I mean, some people experience that at these fellowship times, these Christmas and you know, New Year's and other times when they get together, right? They have relational problems with, even within their own family. Prisons are full. But it's not just enough to, to look and point the finger out, right? I think first we have to point the finger in and recognize the darkness of our own hearts. So what do we need? What do we need? What does our world need? Well, we need the truth of the light of Christ to shine in our hearts. And so, friends, what you see in verse number two is here, Jesus is promised to come to shine this great light. 
In verse 2, you see, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. And then notice, I'm not going to be able to to explain all these verses, but if you look at verses 3 through 5, you notice here the the king brings victory, which therefore brings joy. In verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle and tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And you ask, what does all that mean? Well, I don't have time to explain it. Let me just say this, and that is that Jesus is the one who overcomes the darkness. So why do we need a Christmas baby? Why do we need this one to come? Because our hearts are spiritually dark and we need light and we need a rescuer. Last week, uh, we watched an online part of an online service of, uh, of a church service where we have two very dear friends of ours who go to that church. They're married. Um, my wife is cl- very close friends with the lady. I'm, very, I'm good friends with the man. And they gave a testimony in their church. And it was a very moving testimony. There was a lot of tears, a lot of things the church did not know about in their life. Six months ago, their marriage and their lives were in shambles. The husband was discovered to be in adultery. This, as you can imagine, tore their marriage apart. It hurt many people around them that knew about it. It seemed, frankly, like a hopeless situation. There was talk of divorce. There were thoughts of suicide. I mean, it was, it was a very difficult, difficult time. And really, at that time, the darkness was more evident than ever. And over time, he, he had just made simple, like, small steps of bad choices. And he kept dimming the light of God's word into his soul. He kept flirting with temptation and sin, saying no to the Lord, rejecting, an, uh, rejecting a humble relationship with the Lord. And he kept his life hidden before his wife and before others. And the darkness of his soul eventually actually didn't seem as dark as it once did. When he started committing those small little sins, which grew into bigger sins, it it seemed like a really bad thing. And after a while, those small little sins didn't seem like that big of a deal. The big little sins didn't seem like that big of a deal. Until it was discovered. Until the light was, was shown on his heart in his life, and then the darkness, the sin was revealed. And really for the past six months, they have been in counseling with their pastors. Both of them, even though as difficult as it was, they're believers, they were committed to the light of Christ, to, to leaning into his saving grace. And it was a very difficult, it's been a very difficult six months. It's going to going to continue to be that way. And they are going to fight the darkness every day. But what was neat is to hear, what was amazing was to hear their testimony last week, that their marriage has been saved. That Christ did a work of grace in their life. And he now is the king of their marriage. And the light of Christ shines forth from 
their lives in their marriage. And, and situations like that reminds us of why we need this one to come. Because there's a darkness within our world, there's a darkness within our hearts, and it's a darkness of sin. And it's conquered us. It's conquered us to the point where we all will be separated from God forever. Unless Christ saves us. Unless the light of Christ comes in our hearts, shows us the truth, and we turn in faith to his saving grace. And so, next question, how? How will this Christmas baby, how will this one, how will he reign as king? Look at verse six. For un, am, I, am I off here? Okay. Verse six. For, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Notice the kingly son here, look at verse six, is given. The birth here is descript, described as a, a gift for us, for those who are in darkness. He says, verse 6, for us a son is given. So here, the birth of this child is for our benefit. So it's, the picture here is of this baby that is like a gift for us. Now, when someone gives a gift, they give it for the benefit of the other person, right? I mean, we opened up gifts this past week. Some of us did, some of us didn't. But some of us opened up gifts this past week. If you gave a gift, you typically give a gift for the benefit of the other person, now, I think probably in most homes, that's true of the, the dad, right? He gets some kind of gadget or something, usually what dad's like, and the kids get some kind of toys or something. I don't know, the mom usually get gifts that actually benefit everybody else. You ever notice that? So it's like they're getting something for the kitchen or something to clean the house and, or whatever. And so, so I don't know if that's, the gifts are always given to her for her own benefit. Many times I think it's for everybody else. But anyways, generally gifts are given for the benefit of the other person. So here God gives us a gift of Jesus. And what is the benefit to us? That he can save us and then rule our hearts as king. And so look at verse six. He says, for unto us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is a description of the governing authority of Jesus Christ. And observe that his governing rule is described with four names. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So how will this one, how will this Christmas baby reign as king? Well, he will rule as a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Peace. And each of these names, notice each of these names describe how he will govern according to our greatest need. How he will govern according to our greatest need. What are the greatest needs of our heart and of our life and of our world? Well, our hearts, our world is ruled by Satan and his, in the darkness of his sin. So we need a new ruler to conquer sin, to, to, to reign with his light of truth and to save us. And so notice how each one of these names describe how Jesus can rule our heart with his light. He is a wonderful counselor, which means he is wisdom for the fool. He's a mighty God, which means he gives grace for the weak. He's an everlasting father, which means he, he, he has love for those who are alienated from God. He's the prince of peace, which means he gives harmony for those who are in turmoil. When self rules, when you are given over to your own self, you live a life of foolishness, 
weakness and alienation and turmoil. But when you turn to Jesus Christ and trust him as your king, he can rule your life as one who can give you wisdom, grace, love, and harmony. Therefore, this is a king who gives us what we need most, which is what? We need a king who can sit on our throne, the throne of our hearts, and rule our hearts. We need a king who can defeat our darkness. We need a king who can do for us what we can't do. We need a king to conquer our sin, to rule our hearts in this wisdom, in this might, in this love, in this harmony. And that king is Jesus Christ. And again, as I said at the beginning of my sermon, when we hear Jesus Christ, sometimes we can just pass over that name, of the title Christ, but actually that's, that's the word Messiah, or as the Jews would have understood, that's the word for king. So he's Jesus the king, so we trust him, we submit to him. Our faith is in Jesus, our Savior, and our king. Oop, I don't have that verse up here. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he rules our heart by faith and we submit to him as our kings. And so what Isaiah is speaking about here, he's speaking about this one who would come and this is Jesus Christ. So let me just go through this and think about how he rules our hearts. He's, first of all, he's a wonderful counselor. The word wonderful actually speaks of miracles. It's a word that refers to the supernatural work of God. So Jesus rules as a king who gives supernatural counsel. Isn't that what our world needs right there? Supernatural counsel from the mind of God. I heard one pastor describe um, the counsel of this world as someone who's sitting in um, a high school gymnasium. You know, you have all these kids down the, on the floor playing down there, you know, five on one team, five on the other, and everyone is screaming, trying to give them instructions, trying to tell them what to do, right? All this noise. And, and listening to the counsel of the world is kind of like listening to that. You have a lot of people who think they know what they're talking about that really don't know what they're talking about, giving counsel to people who don't know what they're doing, right? That, that's really the counsel of the world. But we have one that gives counsel from the mind of God. And the reality is those who are darkened by their sin, that is you and I, we cannot look within our own hearts to find truth, to find help. We cannot look without to other people, into this world. We are fools. Like left to ourselves, we're foolish. Our, the, our minds are, are futile, are foolish. So what do we need? We need to look into the word of God. We need the word of God to shine the truth, the light into our souls and to show us this one who came to be our wonderful counselor. And do you realize that you need someone to rule your heart with supernatural wisdom? That's Jesus. He's our wonderful counselor counselor. We need a king to rule our hearts as the mighty God. Now, isn't it fascinating in Isaiah chapter 9 here that this royal baby is described as a mighty God? He's described as God, right? We, we believe there's one God, three persons. So there's, the three persons are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, yet there's one God, right? We can't really completely understand God and his, his nature, but we believe it's true, But here, Jesus, this coming baby, is described as a 
mighty God. It's fascinating to think about that. So here, Jesus, Jesus is God. He has existed for eternity. He was and is. But he came in the incarnation as a baby, as a become a man, and yet he remained God. So here he is. He's the king as the mighty God, which mighty speaks that he has the ability to do something that we can't do. You see, on our own, we can't defeat our own sin. On our own, we can't get rid of our own darkness. We can't overcome death. We need a mighty God. Really, God is the only one who can defeat sin. God is the only one who can give us life. And so we need a king who has this power, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. He is the one who has the ability to spiritually save us. We don't have that ability ourselves. Oops. And so... Next, we see that we need a king who will rule as everlasting father. Kings were often referred to as fathers. In fact, if you were to read in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7, King Ahaz, who was the king at this time, remember he went to the king of Assyria, and basically he said to him, uh, 2 Kings 16 and 7 says, I am your servant and your son, come rescue me. So he actually referred to this king of Assyria as if he was his father. He wasn't biologically his father. He was saying, like, you're now my king, and therefore I am your son. In other words, he's referring to the king of Assyria as if he's a father who's going to take care of him. Now, how did that work out for him? Yeah, he actually wasn't treating him like a father. At least if he did, he treated him like a mean one because he actually came and conquered him. So the idea of a king being a father is that he would care for his people. And Jesus is a king who cares for us. He's a king who loves us and provides for us. He's a king who cares for us. And just think about that. Let that sink in. That Jesus is a king who rules in your favor. He loves you. He loves us. He loves you. He loved you when he came to this world. He loved you when he died on the cross. And he loves you now. And just, I just want to make a side note here. When he says, Father... He's not saying, when he says everlasting father, he's not saying that Jesus and the father, that Jesus is the father. In other words, he's not saying that Jesus is the same person as the father. Again, we said there's one God. So yes, God the father and God the son are one because they're one God. But I think what he's actually doing here is he's making a reference to Jesus as the king being the everlasting father, speaking of his eternal care, that he, he cares for us like a king does, like an everlasting father. And so here's Jesus He's the one that cares for us as a king would, as an everlasting father would. And then last, we have a king who is the prince of peace. The word peace or shalom, sometimes we look at that and we think that it's just speaking of inner tranquility. And yes, peace does speak of that. And sometimes we look at it and we say, well, it's, it's making sure that I'm not an enemy with someone else, with God or with someone else. That's what peace is. And it does speak about that. But actually, really, the, the fundamental idea of peace is that it's restoring harmony, which does mean there's inner tranquility, which does mean that there's restoration of relationships. But it's, it's restoring what was broken. It's restoration of what, what had fallen apart. It's restoring harmony. And so when we, Jesus was born, the angels, they sing out what? Peace on earth. Restoration of harmony on those whom God places his favor. So Jesus is the king who brings peace. And he brought peace through his life, death, and his resurrection. And so let's look at the very end. Verse, look at verse 7. 
Bible says, and of the increase of his government, of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of, his, of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. I love that last part. How can we know this is all going to be done? The zeal of the Lord will do us. And the call to each of us today, Christ's call to us today is to recognize the darkness that comes into our heart, into our life because of sin. And to, to ask the Lord to show us the truth, to show us who we really are, and then to turn to him as our savior and as our king and allow him to rule our heart. And so the question really before us here this morning is, Jesus, your Savior, is he your king? Have you put your faith in him? And Christians, sometimes we can, especially during times like this time of year when we tend to be off of work, maybe, maybe little, things are a little slower than they once were, we can get lazy in our relationship with the Lord. We can get lazy in our submission to Christ as our king. And so let me, let me encourage you this morning to renew your heart in humility before Christ this morning. Maybe there's something the Lord touched your heart in this morning. So let me call to you and ask you to bring that before the Lord and submit that before the Lord. And I, I gotta think there might be someone in here who you just find yourself in a deep, dark place of darkness. And you've thought for so long, I can get my way out of this. I can do it. I just gotta do this. I gotta do this. I... But let me just tell you, friend, you can't get yourself out of it. You need Jesus Christ. And I'd say probably with that, you need someone to help you, to point you to the way to Christ. And so if you find yourself in that place, if you're like, I am in a dark place, I need help. Will you please sit down and talk to someone? I would love to be that someone for you. And please come at some point today, sometime this week, and come to Christ in that way. Would you bow your hearts and your minds with me here, and your heads with me here this morning as we go before the Lord in prayer? Again, if there's something where the Lord pricked your heart in a particular way, I'm going to encourage you right now before the Lord to cry out to him and bring that before him. If you're without Christ, you don't need to wait to sit down and talk to someone. You can just cry out to him now in faith and trust him as your Lord and your Savior and your King. So let me encourage you to do that right now. Would you pray to the Lord with me? Father, we are thankful for the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. That a king would come who would conquer sin and death and give us life. We're thankful that that took place at just the right time. As Galatians chapter 4 says that it was just in the right time that you sent your son to die, to live and to die for us. And I'm thankful that I, that I can say, as with many of my brothers and sisters in Christ here today, that Jesus Christ is the king of our hearts and our lives. And we can be confident that he is the king of this world. Even though we look around at our city and our state and our country and watch the news and things seem like they're out of control, darkness seems like it's enveloping countries and leaders we can trust that you, Jesus Christ, are the one who reigns. 
and soon you will come back. As we sing joy to the world, our Savior reigns. And there's a day when you're coming back to establish your reign forever. We look forward to that day. Lord Jesus, please come quickly. Come quickly to this world and and set in order what you have promised to do. But in the meantime, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room whose, whose heart is not in submission to you. I pray you'll break their heart. May they not, may they not consider church or, or religious activity as any kind of favor they're earning in your sight. God, I pray that they will have what David called a broken and contrite heart, something, God, you will not despise. And so I pray this morning that your grace will fill our hearts and our lives will truly live in submission to you. We pray in Jesus' name.